Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. I'm your host, Chaz Robbins, and today for our episode, we're going to be talking about evangelicalism and feminism. So, you know, for our second episode, we thought it'd be good to talk about something, you know, really light and something that the church hasn't ever, uh, you know, had trouble with and argued about or had different interpretations about. So we thought we'd talk about this. Unfortunately, actually, this is a topic that has been very polarizing for the church. And I guess that'd be a great place to start. Scott, why would you say that this is such a polarizing conversation in the church today? Yeah, Chad, I think you're right. This is a a hot topic, and there have been uh, strong words said on both sides. Uh, Why I think it's polarizing is because there are only a certain number of issues in church discussions that become politicized so that all of one's theology seems to be hanging from a principle. Uh, or from an idea. And I think on the women's issue, many people see their entire theology wrapped up or under threat if, for instance, the feminist case or the evangelical feminist case, or from the other side, if the more patriarchal and hierarchical or complementarian view uh, takes root. Because if it does, it threatens a series of things. I think what what it shows is that, uh, and I think this is actually why it is polarizing, or we could say this is how the polarizing gets expressed, uh, and that's in a very important hermeneutical point, and that is, uh, in the history of this discussion since, let's say, the 1970s, and then it really heated up in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, the history of this discussion shows that it's been a history of a debate about not only what the Bible means, uh, even what the Bible means in its context and how it took root in that time, but uh, the debate is which passages will be seen as authoritative, which passages will be seen as normative, and which passages, and this is where the debate gets really difficult, which passes which passages in the Bible can we say that is a cultural expression of, let's say, something like an eternal principle, but it is not the way we should live today? Uh, an example. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, no one really contends today that males must raise their hands in prayer. Uh, no one really contends from 1 Peter chapter 3 that women must wear plaited hair or braided hair. No one says that because people look at it and say, well, that was a cultural expression of something that's, let's say, modesty or appropriateness. So what's really permanent or normative would be modesty. And modesty in our world would be different. Well, this is really an expression of what has happened with the issue of women in ministry over time, is that it has become a debate about how to read the Bible faithfully. So ultimately, it leads to accusations that people who read it differently are not faithful. 
So if we're going to have a way forward in this, we're in a sense going to have to, to strip it away from, from just being a debate. How, how could we do that? How, how could we go forward, move forward in this discussion in removing it from it simply being an us versus them conversation that's always a debate? Well, Chaz, I mean, I think this is a good question, but it's not, there's not, not any one thing I think that we can do except to say this is I, I believe that people need to express their viewpoint. They need to express their exegesis. They need to say what they think the Bible is saying then uh, as it took root and how it can take root in our world. But I think to do this best, we also have to be in dialogue with one another at some level, and we have to listen to one another at some level. And we cannot be saying that anybody who takes that position is on a slippery slope uh, that's going to lead them away from faithfulness. Those are accusations down the road that do not help the conversation. They're not honest and they're not fair. Rather, I think we have to describe the complementarian view. We have to describe the complementarian view in a way that complementarians say, this is what we believe. Now, I happen to believe that the complementarian view is hierarchical and patriarchal. I don't think it's chauvinistic, although some people would say that. But I do think it's only fair for me to describe hierarchy or patriarchy in terms of how complementarians take a look at it. And I would appreciate if people on the other side then would describe what is called the egalitarian view or the mutuality view, which is what I prefer, in ways that those people describe it and be fair to what they do and not make accusations that the other side doesn't read the Bible. I am thoroughly convinced that Wayne Grudem and John Piper are convinced that this is the best way to read the Bible. I'm fully convinced that I think they're wrong and I think that my approach is the better way to read the Bible. So I think we have to at least try, you know, try to listen to one another some. Yeah, and so, and, and part of that is discussing those key passages that, that come up that talk about this subject. So um, one of them that you mentioned already was the uh, First Timothy passage. Um, what, let's dig into those a little bit. How do you see those, um, at, you know, as they're presented that um, maybe isn't the, the full picture or another way to, to look at those passages that uh, inform this discussion so much? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it wouldn't be possible to do in, in a short podcast any kind of serious exegesis of 1 Timothy 2. But let, let me just explain a couple things that I think can help uh, relieve some of the tension. Uh, the first thing is that 1 Timothy 2 has to be read over against 1 Timothy 5, where there is a discussion of widows who are younger, and many things said of the women in 1 Timothy 2 are said of the widows in 1 Timothy 5, leading us to think that Paul is not simply talking about all women. But let me back off and say something I think that is even more important for reading 1 Timothy 2. Paul says some things in 1 Timothy 2 that seem strange for those who are familiar with the early church. He suddenly seems to suggest that women are supposed to be silent. Silent what appears to be in public assemblies with one another. 
However, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about women who pray and prophesy. No one prophesies privately. Prophesying is, prophesying is something that occurs in public, in the church assembly. Paul's talking about the gift of prophecy. He also talks about women praying. The book of Acts has indications that Priscilla, along with her husband, but Priscilla first, taught Apollos. We have indications that there were women who were prophets, who were speaking the message of God for the people of God. So when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it completely flies in the face of the practices in Paul's churches already at Corinth and of the early church, then we have to be on our guard to be careful about overextending what Paul is saying. These are the, the types of things that I think are very important for learning to read 1 Timothy uh, in its context and root it in that context and not pretend that Paul is making blanket universal statements for all time about all women in all settings. It simply doesn't fit the other evidence in Paul's experience and in Paul's churches. So part of this is understanding the greater story of the Bible and understanding what women have done through, throughout the story in the Bible. And without um, having that knowledge and um, coming to passages like this, uh, it's a difficult time to understand what Paul's really getting at and, and really informing us to be able to, to allow it, like you said, to take root in our culture here today. Yeah, and, and um, I, I belong to a way of thinking, and this is found in my book, The Blue Parakeet, and I happen to be today beginning a new class at Northern Seminary called Women in Ministry, uh, which also will be a topic that we address in the Master of Arts program in New Testament. Uh, that is all concerned about context. But I belong to a school of thinking of reading the Bible that's called the narrative approach or a story approach, so that we read the Bible from the beginning to the end, watching how the narrative develops, how it flows, the sorts of things that happen, the give and take, the ups and downs, the back and forths. And this uh, fits along the line of a very important book by a friend, William Webb, called Women. Uh, slaves and homosexuals in the Bible, where he discusses what is called now the redemptive movement hermeneutic. And that is, we have to watch how women are treated in the pages of the Bible in order to understand the direction of the Bible and its ultimate goal. And many of us believe that the ultimate goal, the strongest statement made, the most eschatologically fine-tuned observation that Paul makes about women is found in Galatians 3.28, when Paul says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. And then Paul says something along the same line in Colossians chapter 3, though he doesn't mention women there. The point is this, that Paul believes that in Christ, previous distinctions are relativized so that the only uh, boundary marker, the only uh, identifying feature for Christians is their in Christness. So that in Christ, male and female doesn't matter. There is a radical experiment of God, of the kingdom of God, 
in Paul's understanding of the church that here the status, the honor, the boundaries, the divisions that are characteristic of both the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world are ended in Christ, and now God's people are living the way God's people are designed to live, and Paul clearly sees that as the direction. In light of that, I think we should lead and read all of what Paul says in his letters about women in the direction of where Galatians 3.28 is taking us. This is not an uncommon approach, but it's an important approach, and it should keep us on the right path because we know this is ultimately where Paul is headed. So as we're reading our Bibles and um, allowing God to, to, to look into our lives and as we try to apply what Scripture says and the message that God has for us, uh, would you say it would be um, the right thing to, to go about doing this by, by looking at as what we read through the lens of becoming a new creation? That, that, that that's really what Paul's driving at and that's what we really should be asking the question um, how is God doing that through this situation? Yeah, here? yeah, I think, Chaz, that's right, is that as we read this text, we say, ultimately, uh, and we don't want to run roughshod over what the text actually says mm -hmm. and minimize what the text says, but we we want to keep in mind the fact that in Christ there is a new creation. This new creation is not just individuals being given a new birth. It's not just individuals being transformed into Christ's likeness. It's a new community being formed in which individual Christians are being reformed and in which a new kind of community is taking root in the Roman Empire and witnessing to the great redemptive plan of God in this world to bring all things together in Christ. Great, man. That's and that's what it's all about. So to get back a little to our um, topic of evangelicalism and feminism, how do you see the the current status of that being played out right now um, in 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 the church setting that we're a part of? Yeah, I I think th this can be uh, summarized in in, uh, in no less than ten hours of conversation. <laughs> uh, the, I would say this. Uh, in 1974, when Nancy Hardesty and Letha Scanzoni wrote a book for evangelicalism that evangelical publishers did not think would do much, but which took off like crazy, and Christianity Today gave it some major awards, they wrote a book in 1974 called All Were Meant to Be. In that book, they hinted at a development that was to occur over the next 45 years or the next 40 years and is still going on. And that is they hinted at this principle of reading the Bible, namely that there are some passages in the Bible that we all take to be normative. We should love God with our heart, everything we've got. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. There are other passages that quite clearly are simply not as normative or is permanent, though we might, as one of my former colleagues used to say, principalize it, turn it into a principle that we can still use. Most of Christians don't think we need to follow the Levitical laws. Uh, most people don't think we need to follow Jesus literally when he said, give up all your possessions. So we've learned to listen to certain things, and some of it seems to be normative, 
whereas some of it seems to be rhetorical or cultural expressions. Well, Scanzoni and Hardesty articulated this in a general way. And over time, people like Robertson McQuilkin articulated principles of how to determine what is normative and what is um, culturally fixed and therefore not normative. Then a former colleague of mine and a friend of mine who used to teach here at Northern Seminary, David Scholler, composed a list of eight or nine items that need to be involved in all interpretations so that we can determine what is normative and what's not. For instance, he laid great emphasis on uh, learning to distinguish descriptive texts versus didactic texts. But this led to all kinds of debate because what happens when someone says, well, I think it's normative and another person says, I don't think it is. I think we should be all grateful for the very careful work of William Webb, who came up with 18 criterion that we use instinctively uh, if we are serious Bible readers on distinguishing uh, what is sort of normative versus what is culturally fixed. And I believe we all do this. I don't think there's anything to fear in doing this. All you have to do is pick up Leviticus, read Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 19, and you will discover right away that there are things that you do uh, and there are things that you don't do, even though they're clearly articulated as the law of God for the people of God. And in the New Testament, there are at times statements that are made that are law, that are imperatives that are simply not followed uh, as laws by us today. So I believe that Nancy Hardesty and Letha Scanzoni unleashed a great gift for the church of analyzing the Bible more carefully to discern what is normative from what is not normative so that we can learn to take root in our society in light of the way the Bible took root in its society. And so I think that the answer to this one is that it's been 40 years or more of discussion, conversation, debate about what is normative and what's not. And I would encourage you to read deeply into this subject because in reading it, you will discover how you are actually interpreting and reading the Bible yourself, and it will bring to a level of consciousness what you are actually doing. And that's a good thing. So these are kind of anchoring points, these criteria to be able to uh, anchor us into discerning what, like you said, the way that the kingdom took root then and uh, how it's to take root now. Um, you know, we, so we've talked about a little bit of the history. We've talked about how the, um, the these certain, cer certain passages have come up and uh, have been interpreted and uh, how they can be interpreted, as well as these um, discerning, anchoring points. Is there anything else in this discussion that we need to know to be able to um, have confident intellectual conversations and conversations that are ultimately um, positive and um, building up for the church? Well, yeah, and, and I think you articulated it, Chaz, and I think I reiterated what you said, and I will say it again. I think we have to keep the big thing in view. We have to keep the view uh, in front of us that we are headed in the direction of learning to live the way God wants us to live in this world. And St. Augustine once said it so well, 
and people forget that Augustine said this. He said, whatever interpretation of Scripture leads us to love God and love others more is a correct interpretation. So I would say that we need to read the Bible with the view toward forming churches that take root in local communities in ways that witness to the gospel of Christ, that witness to the grace of God. And as we think about our readings of the Bible, we have to think about how will this play in my local church, in our local setting, as it seeks to take root as a gospel witness in our world today. And that's what this podcast is about. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode today. Make sure you take a chance to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're getting this podcast so that you make sure that you don't miss any of the great episodes that we have coming up, uh, that we continue this discussion about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much for joining us.